0: Welcome to Profiles from WFIU. I'm Aaron Kane. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, and public figures to get to know the stories behind their work. And come to think of it, if you want to talk about stories behind work, there are a few people more qualified than our guest today, Michael Buravoy. He's a professor of sociology at the University of California at Berkeley. And he's one of the world's leading ethnographers of work. Now, ethnography is a way to study people and cultures, not in a library or in your office, but from the point of view of whoever it is you're studying. And this is an approach that Michael Buravoy has been using for decades. He maintains that if you want to understand how human beings live and work, then you have to go out into the field, live with them, work with them, and ask them repeatedly over time. Participant observation, it's called. Buravoy has spent much of his career studying industrial workplaces through participant observation in places as diverse as Chicago, Hungary, Russia, and Zambia. He's the author of several books, mostly about the different dynamics of human labor under industrial capitalism, state socialism, colonialism, post-colonialism, and he's a champion of what he calls public sociology which aims to make sociological work accessible not only to academics, but to the general public so that they can all produce knowledge collectively. More recently, Michael Buravoy has been using his ethnographic skills on his own job, academia. He's using pretty much the same approach he employed in the steel mills of communist countries to better understand how research universities are functioning under contemporary capitalism. Or maybe malfunctioning would be more accurate, since the title of the patent lecture he recently gave on the IU campus was Universities in Crisis. Before he gave that lecture, Michael Buravoy joined me in the WFIU studios. Michael Buravoy, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Now, I've asked other people what their dreams and lifetime ambitions are, but from what I understand, were I to ask you that question a few years back, I would have received a truly unique answer to get a job in a steel mill in a socialist country. And your dream came true.
1: And my dream came true. I'm a sociologist, but a very strange sociologist. I study the world by taking up positions alongside the people I'm studying. So I live in their lives, in the rhythm of their lives. I participate in their worlds. I do my sociology in a very specific place, the workplace. We all spend a lot of time in our workplace, and I'm a very strange student of the workplace in the sense that I'm interested in industrial workplaces, ones that are really actually disappearing these days. So i worked in Chicago, I worked in a machine shop, the large multinational corporation, and I tried to understand it as a particular expression of the world in which we live, namely capitalism, and how capitalism shaped the way that workers related to one another and to management. And all my friends and my critics said, how can you possibly make these claims about capitalism? If you have no comparison so, the only way I could make a claim that it was really capitalism that was at work was to actually study a place that was non-capitalist so off i went to what was then state socialist country i wanted actually to work in poland um, which was in 1980-81 was a very famous working class movement there called solidarity but you know academics are very slow and took me some time to get permission to leave my university university of california berkeley so by the time I got all the permissions and i began to learn Polish, there was a fellow called General Jaroszelski who basically declared martial law in Poland and made my project impossible. So I decided at the invitation of one of my friends to go to Hungary and it was there that I began working in factories. And I began in a champagne factory, which, as you can imagine, is a very interesting place to work, particularly in a socialist country. This was 1983. And in 84, I managed to work in a machine shop that was very similar to the one I worked in in South Chicago. So there I was already able to compare socialism and capitalism and then my dream, and this is coming back to your question, and it was a long, circuitous answer. Those are, um, those are allowed here. Uh, oh, oh, good. That's great. <laughs> On my way to the machine shop, I would pass through a city called Mishkolts, And in Mishkolts was this great, huge steelworks called the Lenin Steelworks. Lenin called actually Movek. I always wondered, down in the valley there, what on earth is going on? <laughs> um, particularly, the steel worker in socialist country was the emblem, the prototype of the worker, transforming nature. Oh, sure. All the statues, all the iconography, they had That's these workers. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And so, that would be the heart of socialism, or state socialism, as I called it. So that was my dream, to really join the real working class, the real proletariat of state socialism. And it was a very complicated business, because of course, what is interesting about the factories in Hungary or in Poland or in the, uh, it was then the Soviet union they were the most protected areas because basically this was a worker's state. And so they didn't want the world to know that what were the realities of the workplace in a so-called worker's state. So it was a very politically sensitive project that I had undertaken. But anyway, through various networks, contacts, eventually, which was work in itself, I eventually got a place at the very heart of this steelworks, actually, as a furnaceman. But let me get this straight. I am not a—I'm uh, a sort of born of a middle-class background, and so I don't have any sort of inherited blue-collar skills. So wherever I went in these various factories in different places in the world, I always stood out for my incompetence. <laughs> um, and it's very interesting from a point of view of a sociologist how people react to incompetence. And in different countries, they reacted differently. But anyway, in the steelworks, it was less important, my incompetence, because I worked in a brigade in a work group. And so they could sort of cover for my incompetence in all sorts of ways. So yes, that was my dream, and I did that. I worked there three times for about, in all, about a year and two or three months, trying to take leave from the university to work in steel mill. Now, this is a theme that's come up in your work, the notion of what
0: a given industry's image wants to be mm-hmm. versus the realities mm-hmm. on the factory floor, which for once that's isn't right. a metaphor. That's right. You were there. Right. So what are some examples, be it in Chicago, be it at the Lennon Steelworks, of some of the realities that these businesses or even these philosophies, All right. capitalism, socialism, right. want to present versus the reality where the steel hit the floor, so to speak? Right.
1: It was very clear in the socialist context, and in the Lenin Steelworks, is a good example. So, let me tell you a little story of life on the shop floor in the Lenin Steelworks. It was early on; I was thinking it was February, must have been nineteen eighty-five or six. It was very cold in a steelworks. You know, it was very strange already that, that there was ice on the floor in a steelworks. You think it's very hot, but there are places in the steel mill that were away from the furnaces. And anyway, so what would be announced was that the prime minister would be visiting a fellow called Kadar at the time, a very famous figure in in Hungarian history. His prime minister's visiting. And my brigade were given what was called a subotnik in Russian, and basically a Saturday shift. We had to work overtime for nothing. It's like taxation. And the project was to paint one of our machines, a slag drawer that draws the slag out of the furnace. We had to paint it green and yellow. And this seemed completely absurd to all of us, to paint in a dirty steel mill one of the machines. Why did you have to do it? Well, the idea was to present the factory as new and clean, anything but what actually it was. My fellow colleagues in what was then called the October Revolution Socialist Brigade, (laughs) that was the one I was in, they started painting the slag drawer. But I couldn't find a paintbrush So um, eventually I found one that was already black. And so I started painting. I thought, well, what can I paint black? I'll paint the shovels. And one of the most important equipment of the furnaceman is the shovel, because we spend a lot of time shoveling all sorts of things into the furnace. And so there I was painting this. And then the supervisor comes along and says, Hi, Mishy. And that's what they call me, Mishy. But anyway, hey, what the hell are you doing? I said, I'm painting these shovels black. And he says, why on earth are you doing such a stupid thing? And I said, well, I'm, and I said this with a sort of straight face, well, I'm trying to build socialism. Isn't that what I'm supposed to do here? And everybody laughed around me, except the supervisor. <laughs> and, and then one of the uh, clowns of the brigade fellow we called E.T. because E.T., I know, the extraterrestrial guy of the film, had bags under his eyes. And this fellow had deep bags under his eyes because he spent, as we all knew, a lot of time drinking. Anyway, E.T. says, hey, Mishy, Mishy, you're not building socialism. You're painting socialism. And so there was a metaphor of what we were doing so much of our time on the steel floor was actually creating an image that we didn't believe in that we were supposed to engage in a whole series of rituals that socialism was egalitarian, was just, was efficient, and yet all around us we saw inequality, injustice, and inefficiency. And so there was a real contrast, and that my fellow workers would always joke about that discrepancy between ideology and reality. I made the claim that in making that contrast, they were calling upon the party state to actually fulfill the promises that it gave to the population, the socialist promises. They were critical of the party state for not actually producing the socialism they pretended existed, and that therefore the working class, unlike in a capitalist country, actually had a socialist consciousness. They were critical of the dominant ideas. They were critical of the state for not actually delivering on efficiency and justice and equality. And so, in a sense, it was the critique of the dominant groups the dominant classes that led them to have a socialist consciousness so I was all the time trying to explain why it was in Poland, which was where I had intended to go originally, why it was in Poland that you got this amazing working class movement of a societal wide character. Why there and not in supposedly a advanced capitalist country? Why in a state socialist country did you get a working class movement? And so this was the answer I gave that basically under socialism... The dominated, the working class actually engages in a criticism of the dominant class for failing to deliver on its promises. When socialism began to disintegrate in the late 1980s, I was optimistic about a movement from state socialism to a democratic socialism based on what I heard amongst my fellow workers. But I was completely wrong. Not completely, but almost completely wrong. There were some fractions of the working class that were indeed interested in a democratic version of socialism. But for the most part, workers gave up on state socialism and saw that the only reasonable future would be a capitalist one. Hence that transition from state socialism to capitalism, which in the end turned out to be a rather disastrous transition for the working class this metaphorical coat of paint that you allude to, this conflict
0: between the public face Mm -hmm. of a given structure and the reality, as well as the level to which people within that system feel they're empowered to criticize it with all that you've seen, colonialist, post-colonialist, capitalist. What are some of the different versions of that story that you've seen under those different systems?
1: In South Chicago, my argument was more that... Actually, my fellow workers accepted a lot of the vision that capitalism gives of itself. That, in fact, they did not see themselves as exploited workers. The ones in state socialism, they saw themselves as exploited. But the ones in South Chicago, they would be critical, perhaps, of the trade union to which they belonged for failing to actually stand up for working class interests. But they didn't have a deep criticism of the existing system, economic system, in which they existed in the way that the ones in state socialism did. And so my argument has always been that is the reason why, in fact, capitalism manages to continue and to reproduce itself, because it reproduces a commitment to capitalism on the part of the dominated classes, um, working class. So the workers actually believe in capitalism and its possibilities. And often, when those possibilities are not realized, they blame themselves rather than the system for all the trials and tribulations they go through. So in your experience, that's baked into the philosophy? Well, it's baked into their, uh, yes, into the practice and the worldview of the workers themselves baked in that's an interesting yes it's yes i think it is baked i think you're right it's it is pretty deep uh, there are moments when it flares up and there have been historically but it, but for the most part and this is particularly important today where we live in a world that is i was working in chicago in 1973-74 on the shop floor a different world from the world we live in now which is a very precarious world that factory of course no longer exists
0: like so many others. Like
1: so many others in that area in South Chicago. And instead, what you have is a sort of warehousing of workers. It's, uh, it's basically a deindustrialized ghetto, that area. More generally, people's lives at many levels, not just the working class level, lives are much more precarious now than they were at that time. Trade unions are much weaker. They're on the defensive. They're shrinking, becoming less powerful by the day. But still, even under these precarious conditions, people don't have an imagination of an alternative world. Of course, in the 1970s, there was an alternative world. You might call it the Soviet world, the state socialist world, but that was seen negatively. Right. And interestingly, in the end, the working class in Eastern Europe and, and state socialism did have an alternative world too, but they saw it positively, namely capitalism. So, yeah. Baked in, I think, is a good expression. Yeah. Well, do you see these philosophies meeting in the middle? I'm
0: curious, because you say that nothing seems to be slowing the momentum of capitalism, or or perhaps, put better, the way you put it, that the uh, imagination does not grasp an alternative. Right. Even though there is this deindustrialization that would seem to me harms the very ethos of capitalism. Right. So One would think so. if you were to guess 20 years down the road, considering that we're talking about 20 or 30 years ago, what things were like, what do you see either in this country or some of the other places that right. you've been? Where are yeah. we going with all of this? Yeah. Well, that's
1: a million dollar question. Well, I'm
0: afraid I don't have a million dollars. But...
1: <laughs> uh, half a million will do. Yes. Now, so you said that the capitalism is not slowing down. One of the most interesting things is that capitalism has a tendency to generate crises. But where in the past people thought that those crises would get deeper and deeper and in the end make capitalism impossible, actually capitalism often thrives on these crises. It sort of creates new ways of handling the crises and generates new technologies, new sets of social relations, that actually sort of regenerate capitalism, but often at the expense of the people who participate in it. Well, it's guaranteed innovation. Right. And the question is whether that innovation is destructive, constructive. um, And, of course, it depends who you are, whether it's constructive and destructive. And, of course, today people are talking about it's the end of work. You know, automation is now finally with us. Now, that, of course, has been a prediction for the last two centuries and every time it proved to be wrong. And I think it will be proven to be wrong this time. But what you ask is, you know, what is the imagination of broad sectors of the population that are facing such precarity, whether it be African-Americans in ghettos, whether it be the working class that is losing their jobs, whether it be the independent drivers of Uber, what alternatives are there? And I think that's where the the role of the sociologist is important. One of the functions, I believe, of the sociologist is actually to sort of create alternative imaginations of, of alternative worlds that are not necessarily conceived by people, but worlds that are really feasible. So one of my friends, Eric Olin Wright, talks about real utopias. And so he thinks, for example, that cooperatives is another way of organizing production in which workers participate and can regulate their lives. Uh, universal income grants in which we are guaranteed a basic subsistence existence, so that if capitalists, if business people want to employ workers, they have to actually give them a higher wage than that which they are guaranteed. These are imaginations that I think we should be in the business of disseminating. We lack imaginations of alternatives.
0: Michael Buravoy, Professor of Sociology at the University of California at Berkeley. You're listening to Profiles from WFIU. Maybe we should redefine our terms a little bit here because sociology... Mm. I'm captivated by sociology because it reminds me more than I thought it would of something like astrophysics, you know, the study of the universe, whatever that is. Uh And so Uh sociology would seem to be the study of social institutions and society, whatever that is. Uh You have made a lot of strides and you have devoted a lot of work to making sure that sociology is well defined. Uh Uh, One of the ways you did this was in a presidential address to the American Sociological Association Uh back in 2004. You broke down sociology into four categories. Uh Public sociology, policy sociology, professional sociology, and critical sociology. Uh So there's a lot to unpack there. Oh, yeah, there is. Uh, But uh, (laughs) are are you up to walking us through it? Whoa, I can try. Because we can also skip over all of that to focus on public sociology because I know that this is an area you've devoted a lot of time and work to. Yes.
1: I think let's move to the public sociology, but first let's say something about what sociology is. Okay. We've talked a little bit about the way I do sociology, but what makes for sociology is the understanding that our personal worlds, our personal troubles, are actually shaped by broader factors. I was talking about the experience of the working class in the United States that when things don't go as they should, when people work hard and devote themselves and they suddenly find themselves without a job, they tend to blame themselves. They don't see, for example, unemployment as a property that is inherent to the forces of capitalism. And so, sociologists do then is to link people's micro-experiences to the macro-forces that shape those experiences, whether those macro-forces are to do with the economy, to do with the political system, whether it's to do with the social system in which we live, it's to move out and explain people's micro-experiences. That's what I think we do as sociologists, and there are many different techniques and methods, and there are many different theories about the link between the micro and the, what we call the micro and the macro. So what is interesting about sociology, but other disciplines too, and particularly in the United States, that you know, here we are in the academy and we talk to one another. So we write a paper and you know, it will be published in a professional journal but you know how many people will read that? Uh, very few. And so the idea of public sociology is actually to transmit the ideas, the researches, the theories that we trade amongst ourselves, transmit them to wider society. In a sense, to send back to the wider society what actually has come from the wider society. Now, this is not an easy task because we are so used to speaking in a vocabulary that actually makes us into a scientific order, scientific profession. So we have to translate this back into a language that is accessible to wider society. That is the project of public sociology. And, you know, it was 2004, which is quite a few years ago, 14 years ago, that I gave that address. But the idea still continues and carries. I'm, of course, not the only person to have proposed this is a very important part of our obligation to the world, to actually not just talk to one another and build a research program, but also to transmit that to the world from which it originally comes. So yes, so as an ethnographer, I'm particularly sensitive to this issue because I'm continually, or what we call partisan observation, I'm continually interacting with people from whom I'm eliciting the foundations of alternative theories of the world. And so I'm very sensitive to what is the relationship between the, quote, sociologist or scientist and the people being studied. So it's not surprising that I should see this as a very significant part of our discipline. Well, and also
0: to put the word ethnography under a microscope for Uh, a second, this is how you do sociology, as you put it. This is essentially observing... From the perspective of the observed,
1: I guess is that, is that- it's more than the perspective. Actually, it's actually joining, joining the participant, the people you're studying in their lives. That is in their time and in their space. So it's not just the perspective. In fact, one would recognise their perspective, but ultimately the sociological perspective may be very much at odds with the perspective of the people I'm studying. But it is joining them in their space and in their time. That is the crucial defining characteristic of, quote, ethnography.
0: So it makes perfect sense that you would acknowledge this need to transmit this information back from the macro to the micro, if you like. So what are some of the ways that one can do this? What are some of the ways that you have set about to do
1: it? Mm. Well, let's be clear. I'm the evangelist of public sociology, <laughs> but that doesn't mean the acolytes. I'm the doing acolytes it. are up to something I, everybody different. Everybody else should do it, not me. No, it's not quite true. So let me, let me, let me. Yes, there are a number of ways. I actually distinguish between two types of public sociology. One I call this sort of organic public sociology, and the other is a traditional public sociology. Organic public sociology is when I actually try to engage with as a sociologist, with neighborhood communities, religious communities, working-class communities, trade unions, social movements, and almost in a face-to-face dialogue with them. And in a sense, what some sociologists call conscientizing, so bringing the consciousness of these movements into a sociological world where one understands that what happens in the micro actually is shaped by the macro. So that's why I call organic, so it's the unmediated relationship between sociologists and those they are engaging with, then there is the mediated public sociology, which I call the traditional public sociology. So this is, you might say, this is what I'm doing at this moment in time with you in this interview. It is through the media that we try to transmit ideas of sociology. And the media can be, you know, social media, it can be Facebook in principle, it can be the New York Times uh, op-ed pieces, it can be on television, it can be radio. So there are many media through which one can transmit. But in that case, the relationship to The public is a mediated one. The traditional public sociologist is the more usual form it takes. And people do write op-ed pieces. They do do interviews with people like yourself. So the organic one is less usual and it's also less visible. This is obviously, you know, one writes an op-ed in the New York Times. You know, quite a few people are likely to read it. But when one, I have a conversation and engagement with a neighborhood community, it's much less visible. It is more confined, but can actually in the long run be much more effective. So the idea is to generate, particularly the traditional public social, but also the organic, to generate debate about the fundamental goals, purposes of people's existence and to engage with the foundations of their life and to see their life in its broader context, and for people to see how it can be organized differently.
0: So this question might be painfully reductive then,
1: Mm. but how's it going? How's that working? (laughs) How's that working? It's very difficult. It depends. If one is engaging with a social movement, social movements have a certain fluidity to them and their certain receptiveness to a sociological perspective, to a broader perspective.
0: The term organic seems particularly yes. fitting.
1: Right. This is how we get words in social media like viral. Right, 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 right. But if we're talking about more sedentary populations, more fixed, it's difficult, you know, you use the word baked in. I think that's a very good expression that Actually, people's ideas, lived experiences are baked in to their circumstances. And it's difficult often to sort of drag them out. They develop a whole set of interests in the way that they interpret the world. And so... So I'm actually a Marxist, so as a Marxist I am very critical of capitalism and I imagine the possibilities of an alternative to capitalism being socialism. But this is an idea that is incredibly difficult for me to transmit. It was difficult in South Chicago. Only when I got to know people very well did I tell them, you know, what my own particular views were. I was not engaged in public sociology on that occasion. Um, But that was very clear that this was a set of ideas that would not be received very well. But equally in Hungary or in Russia, you know, people very skeptical of Marxism because, of course, there it is the dominant ideology of which they are very critical. So how can you be a Marxist, They think, coming from the West? This is a very strange phenomenon. This will be the typical response. Oh, Marxism works very well in theory, but it doesn't work in practice. And that's them saying that. That's them saying that. And they know, of course, what the practice is. That was when they were living under communism. Now, of course, when they're now living under capitalism, yeah, they, they have a much more positive view of the past. In fact, the book I wrote on hunger is called The Radiant Past, and it was written in 1990, just immediately after the collapse of state socialism and the emerging capitalism. So at that point, there was still optimism that the future would indeed be a radiant one, but um, my prediction was... That, in fact, it's the past that would look radiant, not the future. And I was right. I continued to go back and I talked to the workers that I had been working with then and, and their families. And so, yeah, I, in many ways, large sections of the population really had suffered from this transition. They led a relatively secure life with certain guarantees, job guarantees, health guarantees, education guarantees. There was not the enormous inequality that has sprung up since then. And we see the results of this in a place like Hungary and indeed Poland is the sort of the dispossession of the working class from control of their life, the rising insecurity, precarity that's leading to right-wing politics. And uh, these are relatively depressed societies. So I don't think they realized how good they had it under state socialism.
0: Well, and yet, if my understanding is correct, these days in Russia... State socialism is still romanticized, Ah, even in a form of capitalism.
1: Well, those who remember it definitely romanticize it. So the older generation, definitely there is a sort of nostalgia for the past, the security of that state socialism. And of course, the Soviet Union was the center, right? And uh, the Eastern Europe, Poland, Hungary... Bulgaria, Romania, they were the sort of periphery, and they sort of resented the fact that they were in subject to this hegemonic force from Soviet Union. But in the Soviet Union, citizens were, in a sense, often proud of these accomplishments as rendered by the media about Soviet Union, whether it be the accomplishments during the Second World War or the building of a whole new type of society. Yes. And so people are now nostalgic for that era, yeah interesting but of course the younger generation doesn't know what it was all about at all there's probably slowly but surely developing a new interest in that past but for the most part when i go to when i go and talk give lectures in russia give talks in russia about my experiences and so they think i'm just coming from the moon i mean they don't they students cannot relate to what it was like in Soviet factories and can't relate probably to what it's like in a factory because of course they're disappearing, but a Soviet factory is even more remote. And that an intellectual like myself should actually go and work in a factory, that's just crazy. And I'm, I'm still hung up on that,
0: frankly, because you work in, I think what we can safely call a highly theoretical field and ethnography is kind of the less theoretical version of that. It's very much boots on the ground. And it seems to me you've taken that to quite an extreme mm-hmm. in, in your in your life and work. And so if I may, I'd just love to ask how you got there. So growing up in the UK, mm-hmm. studying mathematics in Cambridge, mm-hmm. and next thing you know, you're, you're going to Zambia, mm-hmm. which, if, if I'm not mistaken, was barely an independent country at that point. Mm-hmm. So what started all this? What was the catalyst you mentioned growing up in a sort of a middle-class background. Mm. You were no family Bolshevik. Right. Uh, so this fire right. really got lit under you. So what happened?
1: I don't know. <laughs> well, I often ask myself, first of all, yes, I, I always wanted to be a chemist when I was very young because my father was a chemist. So then I wanted to be an astrophysicist. That was my dream before the steel works. to be an astrophysicist. And I was a passionate astronomer when, in, during my teenage years. And that's why I wanted, to, in the end, to do mathematics, because to do astrophysics, I had to have a mathematics, good foundation in mathematics and then where well, i th- I think I made the mistake or it was not a mistake it was a it was just a stroke of i suppose of imagination. I went to the United States between school and university, high school and university I was, there were six months here. this was nineteen sixty five and I was in a publishing firm in New York. I managed to get a job there, a work visa. It was mainly through contacts. I had one relative there in New York. And this was just completely transformed my life. I mean, first to be coming from Manchester, England to New York, it was, it was unimaginable. And uh, I was, it was a traumatic experience. I don't think I spoke a word for three months there. It was so completely overwhelming, the life in New York, the intensity. The, the, the speed, the, the, well, you, the, the enormity of these buildings. <laughs> they were um, evil buildings? Yes. Everything was so extravagant. The food was extravagant. And at that time, you know, England and the United States were very different worlds. They're much more similar now. And in fact, it was, you know, when my friends, they said it was, it was like treason to go to the United States, this crass, vulgar country. But it was transformative for me. Of course, this was a very interesting time. 65 was the beginning. It was the anti-war movement. There was civil rights movement beginning. Um, there were the, all sorts of political activity, the likes of which I'd never seen in England. And so it just opened my eyes to a new world and... I think that must, and then I had to go back to Cambridge to study mathematics. And those were one of the most miserable years of my life as an undergraduate, which is really sad because Cambridge is a beautiful place, but it was really miserable. I thought that Cambridge was irrelevant. I thought that all my teachers were parasites. I mean, what they were doing was a waste of time. So I already had this imagination that an academic should actually engage with the world. But I decided to stick with the mathematics. Sociology did not exist. It was much too vulgar a discipline for a place as erudite as Cambridge, which is a reflection of its remoteness from the world. So I continued with the mathematics. But every summer, I mean, one of the great things about Cambridge is that the terms are only eight weeks long. So you have three terms, there are 24 weeks. That means there's, a, there's 28 weeks of, quote, vacation. And there was a long vacation in the summer. I used to travel to different countries. And all this excited my imagination about the ways in which societies differ and that's really i guess how i became a sociologist the other factor is that in england sociology had hardly existed was something called social administration which was to do much more with the way the state organized welfare education. It was a sort of policy-oriented, very well-known, very powerful and very important discipline, but it was not sociology which really just grew up precisely at the time I was an undergraduate in England, and obviously not in places like Oxford and Cambridge but in the new universities, and it was the sort of fashionable discipline of the time. I was committed to it because I thought this would be a great discipline to be able to teach so you're asking me, so in what ways I may then myself sort of contribute to public sociology? Well, I, want, I always say, well, my first public are students. And so teaching can be organized as a form of public sociology if you take seriously the actual lived experience of the students and then try and sort of engage in a dialogue about that lived experience, constituting it as something that is shaped by a wider world. <laughs>
0: You're listening to Profiles. From WFIU, I'm Aaron Kane. I'm speaking with sociologist Michael Buravoy. In your travels, especially over the last decade or so, you've been paying close attention to the state of universities, of institutes Uh, of higher learning. And that's one of the things that you are on this campus to talk about. And I know that there is... Lots you can talk about Mm -hmm. on the topic of universities in Mm -hmm. crisis at this moment, but I gather that as a sociologist, your entry point is what many others call neoliberalism, Mm. but what you refer to as third wave marketization. (laughs) Yes. So can you unpack that for us a little oh, bit? Okay. Is that a good starting point to talk about universities in yeah, crisis?
1: Well, the university in crisis, if we're going to take that line of argument, is one in which what seemed to be taken for granted as a public institution that served the public good, that produced knowledge that would be progressive, that's produced and generated students who would actually take knowledge and it in their occupational and lives as citizens that this entity the university is no longer seen to be a public good it is now seen very much as a private good so students for example are paying fees in order to themselves possess a credential so that they can build a career so from being a public good it is now a private good and yeah, it's a process which one can call, and I have called, a process of commodification. That is making, selling basically the production of knowledge and the learning of knowledge to various clients, to various consumers. So universities are increasingly engaging with some sort of market transactions, with industries, and students are increasingly paying fees for their credentials. So this is the direction in which universities are moving. And I think this is really problematic in that we are particularly now in a world that we need knowledge to save humanity from itself. And the climate change is an example of that. But, you know, we are living in a world in which intensifying market transactions are leading to, and I've talked about it already, increasing inequality, increasing precariousness. This cannot keep on going, and the university is a one place where solutions to the problems that we face today can be generated. But if the university becomes a handmaiden, a vehicle for the expansion of those who can pay for the knowledge then indeed we are not going to produce knowledge that will save this planet. So the university, is it's particularly important that it be seen and be constituted as a public good at this point. But at the very moment it is becoming privatized, the interests that are driving the university are of a fiscal character. That's why I'm giving this a talk on universities in crisis here, because I think we in the university must be ever more conscious of how we have to reverse this trend. Not only
0: that, but on the topic of, as you say, commodification, the notion of running a university as a business at its core has an inescapable fatal paradox, which is that if a university is a business, it's the only business where the customer is also the product.
1: Uh Uh-huh. How on earth can that work? (laughs) Hmm. The customer is turned into a product. And, but that, of course, happens in many of the service sector generally. It's just that I think the university still is a very peculiar institution in the sense that it actually is capable of grasping the direction of society and capable of formulating a variety of solutions and the recognition of distinctive problems that we have to tackle. And in as much as it has a sort of relative autonomy, it is able to take a more, a more distant, a more, a more objective, a more clear perspective on where we're going. But insofar as it becomes the agent of those who have power and money, its role in deciphering where we are going or where we should be going diminishes. So, yeah, I'm very troubled by the direction in which the public university is going.
0: So I want to ask also about some of the universities, the Institutes of Higher Learning you've encountered in your travels, really all over the globe. But as a way to get into that, if one apprehends a university as a business, turnabout is fair play. You should be able to talk about them like you talk about businesses. And one question that comes to the fore when you look at a business that is in trouble you ask, is it too big to fail? And it seems to me that universities, depending on where you are, are approaching that notion differently. There are schools that are failing. Mm -hmm. And there are others that are doing anything that they can to keep from failing. And I'm reminded of some of the tactics utilized, say, in 2008 to keep businesses afloat at any cost. So what sort of things have you encountered around the world uh, who's doing it right who's doing it wrong who's having some particularly interesting approaches to the role of an institute of higher learning in a society what its priorities should be
1: right. and how it deals with some of these uh, economic right. hardships right in as much as the university is now no longer taken for granted as a necessary public good so universities are experiencing the withdrawal of funds from states and that's across the board it's very variable but it's across the board and it's across the board not just in this country but it's all over the world and the university therefore has to figure out how it's going to make money it becomes effectively a profit center so how does it make money well the first move is increase student fees so yes that can be done in a progressive or a regressive manner but it is happening It then may try and figure out how to get money from alumni, from donors, from public-private ventures, from making alliances with industry that can then capitalize on cheap labor power of graduate student research. So there are a whole wide range. It can do it on the short term, creating new programs, credentialing, MA programs, business MBA programs, all sorts of programs that, you know... It's not clear how much they really have to offer, but they do give you a stamp, a credential. They make money on sort. So these are all ways, some inventive, some less inventive, all ways in which the university's resources are actually being devoted to figuring out how to make money. So I and my fellow colleagues, instead of teaching and doing research and doing service, are actually trying to figure out how to make money for our program so that we can survive. So that's, that's one dimension. But with this movement towards making money, you generate a whole new administration. The old university, what was it once called the academic revolution of the immediate post-war period when universities expanded, was one in which basically the faculty in the university controlled the university, directed the university. It was like a self-governing organization. And there was guaranteed income, in the case of the public university, from the state. And, you know, income was not the issue. It was a matter of how do you organize this university most effectively? How do you organize research and, uh, and teaching most effectively? Today, the administration becomes corporatized. People have flown in from outside. And basically, they are the ones that sort of increasingly play the role of directing the university to be a money-making machine. So the management of the university changes. The faculty are expropriated from control of the university. And it descends on an ever-increasing administrative structure. In my university... Their senior managers over the last 30 years have increased fivefold. What happens is that there are people, they float in from outside, for example, from the World Bank, and they sort of begin to think of the university, as you say, as a business, as a corporation. How do you make money? They acknowledge, they make a token acknowledgement. Yes, we're in the business of teaching, but basically they come in with a corporate mentality. I call these people spiralists. They spiral in. And they have a signature project that's always supposed to elevate the university, and then they spiral on, and the university has to cough up all the money for this signature project, which is usually a losing project, and the university spirals down. So that is what is happening. And the question is whether we, faculty, students, staff, are prepared to put up resistance to this. And we are so organized in a way that, and it's to do with my experiences on the shop floor in South Chicago, we are so organized that we are so riveted to actually building our careers that we have no time to even think about how to actually protect the future of the university. we have got blinders on. We've got blinders on, and the incentive structure is such that we... It's deeply baked in, as you would say. Um,
0: <laughs> Back to the recipe.
1: Yeah, so it, yes. So that's, that's my role. And I'm actually chair of the Berkeley Faculty Association. And as such, I'm concerned to continue to generate and to try and encourage my colleagues to be committed to the idea of the university as a public good. It is not an easy project. I was
0: just going to ask reductive question number two. How's that going?
1: Yeah, well... Some chancellors and administrative structures are really abysmally incompetent and make such egregious errors that it really does generate resistance from below. And that was the case for our previous chancellor. Among other things, he was covering up sexual harassment because sexual harassment in this case was two or three very distinguished faculty uh, engaged in sexual harassment. And obviously, if that became public... This would damage the brand of the university, and therefore they try and cover it up. And when this became known in the university, people were really appalled. And so faculty organized, and first the provost, and then the chancellor disappeared. Um, So there are moments, there are moments when collective struggle can develop against administrations that are so blinkered and limited in their conception of the university, but of course the more enlightened leaders are able to somehow manufacture an imagination that we are still public while at the same time engaging in practices that are like those of a corporation. The most important thing I think we have to do and this links back to the public sociology the most important thing we have to do as faculty particularly is to engage with publics we have taken for granted that the university will exist will be funded and that has legitimacy amongst the broader population but in practice our legitimacy is rapidly diminishing not just because of these scandals but because actually now their children the children of the population shall we say of california or indiana they are paying and they're having to pay huge fees And so if we're already paying fees, then this is already a private good. And therefore, why should we be taking taxpayers' money to actually give to the university? It is now seen to be a private enterprise. So we have to engage with publics about the importance of the public university. So the university has not just got to be accessible to broader populations in the sense of bringing in students from different backgrounds, but it also has to be accountable to publics to actually demonstrate that the university has something to offer. If we don't do that, then indeed our future, to my mind, is bleak. Is this something where there's resistance on both
0: sides? In other words, that it can be difficult to get a tenured faculty member motivated to make this case and make that a part of their priority, at the same time, it's difficult to get a member of the public to acknowledge, yes, this is a public good, this is something that we need, and it's worth investing in.
1: You hit the nail on the head. Exactly. On both sides, it's problematic. Yeah. Faculty, of course, are driven by their own incentive structures, by their own careers. They're evaluated you know, every year, every other year. In fact, they're not evaluated every year. They are every minute. Everybody, they know. It's like you know, they're being... They're in a surveillance machine. That's how we feel. You know, everybody is so concerned to be publishing, to be teaching, that we have no no space, no moments to think more broadly. And if we do think more broadly, it's quite another thing. We don't have a space to actually actualize those those things it's on the side of... And, and, and I might say also that what is happening in the university is that the tenure track faculty are... It, it's not that tenure is... Dissolving it's just shrinking. The numbers of tenure-track faculty is not increasing, and the numbers of lecturers who are in a much more insecure, precarious position, hired today, fired tomorrow, they're the ones that take up most of the teaching. And so the tenure-track faculty are becoming a sort of labor aristocracy. They're complicit in the whole reproduction of this existing order. So the ones who have potential power to actually sort of project a different image of the university are the ones that often are the most complicit in the reproduction of that university. So that's a real problem. And then, of course, there is, the, as you said, from the side of the public, you know, let's just take California. So what has happened in the University of California, well, my campus, the University of California at Berkeley, the one way in which the administration decided to get money was to bring in out-of-state students. Now, they pay thirty-four dollars or $35,000 in tuition and fees as opposed to the Californians who are paying 14000 So 27% of our intake became either international or out-of-state students. Well, this is the University of California. So the legislature makes a big hoo-ha about this, and the state auditor looks and examines this and discovers, she claims true or false, but nevertheless, it's an embarrassment that she would even make the claim at all that the students who actually are accepted from out of state are less qualified in many cases than those who are excluded from California. So you can imagine the parents of children in California, they see that their kids have straight A's, they should really get into the University of California, but they can't. And then they hear that there are these out-of-state students are coming in, taking places. So this is... Or a case of embarrassment and it doesn't give credibility to the university. So yes you're absolutely right. the broader population has though it you know opinion polls show that actually they would like to have more funding for the university so that we could have expanded places so and so in the end the actual image that we have as a university is not also very progressive one. so we have to work at changing that. This is going to
0: seem perhaps like it's coming out of left field. But in the interest of full disclosure, I'm trained as a musician. And in the field of classical music, a debate that's happening right now mm-hmm. is in order to stay relevant, in order to keep people coming into uh-huh. the, the classical music halls, in order to keep this a nurtured cultural phenomenon, all we have to do is change it into something that it's not. That seems to be kind of the debate happening right now. Can it survive as is, or does it all have to become crossover? Does it effectively have to mutate into mm. a different art form in order to survive? Mm. Or can it survive as it is? Mm. Is that the case for institutes of higher learning, for universities? Do they have to change into something uh-huh. that they're not in order for them to survive and thrive and emerge from these crises?
1: Yeah, they've got to change themselves. They've got to be, as I think, much more engaged this is the public sociology, now Is the public university. What does public mean? It means not just being broadly accessible, but it means actually moving into the community. It's not bringing people from outside onto the campus. It's the campus moving out into the community. And there are examples of this. I mean, they're not necessarily in the United States and, you know, in countries like Brazil. I mean, there are moments in countries that, like, South Africa, in the anti-apartheid struggles, the university was actually propelling all sorts of fascinating changes in the community against apartheid at least the sociologists were so working with the development of trade unions in the community, working with social movements in the community and what is interesting this was not just a distraction from the what I call the professional sociology but actually invigorated the professional sociology and changed the sorts of theories that we now take for granted so. There are moments and there are places where we have conceptions of an alternative university. So yes, I think you're right. We have to. We have to. We we cannot be an ivory tower anymore, because we don't have the legitimacy to be an ivory tower. So we have to. In your case, all right? Classical music we that we got to become advocates, propagators, propagandists, even if you will, of classical music in wider circles and I suspect that of course you know here in Indiana you have such an amazing music school that in fact you probably are doing this all the time and I've heard even if I've only been here what 24 hours or 36 hours or 48 hours wherever it is I've already heard that actually Indiana University is actually developing projects that move the university into the community I find this I find this pretty encouraging
0: Michael Buravoy, thank you so much for joining me today on
1: Profiles. Thank you very much, Aaron. I loved every moment of it. Michael Buravoy,
0: ethnographer and professor of sociology at the University of California at Berkeley. I'm Aaron Kane. Thanks for listening. Copies of this and other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about Profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. The producer is Aaron Kane. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash, The executive producer is John Bailey. Please join us next week for another edition of Profiles.